The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 156. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Deep Space Nine fourth season episode, The Visitor. Joining me today on the panel are Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, I want to suggest that you join the StarQuest fan club mailing list by texting StarQuest to 66866. That's one word, StarQuest to 66866. And you'll join our mailing list, our newsletter mailing list, when we send out a couple emails a month, not too many, where we tell you about the latest things that are going on with StarQuest and your favorite shows and that sort of thing. So check it out. Join up. StarQuest to 66866. So this time we're talking about uh, the Deep Space Nine episode, The Visitor. And I have to say, this is one of my favorites. And Mm -hmm. I think for fairly obvious reasons, being a dad, uh, I've I've always liked this one even before I was a dad. And uh, so, Jimmy, could you give us a quick recap of what this episode is uh, about? Yeah, it's set primarily in the year 2450, so that's 75 years after Deep Space Nine ended and 50 years after Picard Season 1, so this is farther into the timeline Mm -hmm. than we normally go. Uh, Jake Sisko is an old man living in the Louisiana bayous, And he's visited by a wannabe writer who sees him as her favorite author, even though he's only published two books, uh, Anslem, uh, which we've heard about previously, which he started in The Muse, and a collection of short stories. She wants to know why he abandoned writing and went into another field, which happened to be science. And he reveals that it's because of his father, Benjamin Sisko, had died in the fourth season of Deep Space Nine on board The Defiant. But really, Cisco hadn't died. He was skipping forward through time, and he and Jake are linked. We see all of this happening through flashbacks to different points in Jake's life. And in the end, Jake reveals that he's got a secret plan to change the timeline and undo all of this and bring his father back. But it involves him dying. And so at the climax of the episode, when Cisco is there, and it has to be when Cisco is there, Jake kills himself to reset the timeline and keep the original accident from happening. Whew, yeah, <laughs> it's a uh, <laughs> very emotionally powerful episode. So the original mm-hmm. idea of a, of a fan visiting a reclusive writer was based on a real-life event of a high school student who went to the home of J.D. Salinger in 1980 uh, and showed up and interviewed him for a paper, which is kind of funny. Uh, so, the, and, Oh, it's not the plot of the Stephen King novel, Misery? 
Oh no, will you break down? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a much creepier episode of uh, Deep Space Nine. That's for sure. So I thought that was a, an interesting uh, little germ of an idea for this. Uh, so the character of Melanie, the young lady who comes to mm-hmm. to visit Jake, uh, is played by Rachel Robinson, who is Andrew Robinson's daughter. Uh, oh. the, the actor who plays Garrick. I thought that that was interesting. Uh, and of course, the older Jake is played by Tony Todd, who fans will know is also it's, plays Kern, Worf's brother. So he's he's done several different things in, it's actually in Star Trek. Kind of nice to see him play a much more subdued character because you think of Kern and he's of course yeah. he's Klingon and he's over all Klingon and he's <laughs> over the top. Yeah. Uh, Although I have to say that as Jake aged, his bone structure and accent changed dramatically. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess they originally thought that they might be able to take the uh, actor, um, um, uh, the actor plays Sir Lofton. Sir Lofton, thank you. Uh, and age him, but it just wasn't possible. I mean, it was too to get him into his seventies, you know, or eighties. Yeah. It would have been way too much. So yeah. Uh, so anyway. Um, I I really I liked this episode for the moments of Cisco seeing his son and mm-hmm. not just seeing his son but also being torn by the fact that his son had was basically giving up his life to save him and how the, as a father that would be emotionally you would it would it be emotionally tearing at you yeah, because basically this is a story of Jake wasting his life in search of an impossible hope, and it ultimately pays off, mm-hmm. but they don't know, and Cisco doesn't know that it's actually going to pay off, right. and so he just sees his son wasting his life and not moving on. Right. Yes. And, and it, it, yeah, go ahead, Father Corey. I was going to say, you know, and one thing, too, is that while Jake is going through time normally, Cisco, all these events are sequential. So he right. goes from the accident to... Uh, seeing Jake in the his room to later on, and you know, just skipping from time to time, it's all in one shot. So Cisco doesn't age, even though Jake aged again, you know, seventy, eighty years. Right, and the the gaps in time get longer and longer in between, and uh, we get to see like how Jake sort of at first he's just in grief, this poor young man who's now an orphan who lost both his parents now, and he he kind of lives on the on the station for a while. He's taken in by uh, Dax sort of becomes a surrogate mom, and you know the rest of the crew apparently take care of him. But it, things get go, get bad with the Klingons, and they need to send all of the civilians off the station at one point. And he's he he, he doesn't want to go. He's like this is my last link to my dad, and it's it's sad. Well, it's interesting too. You see, even Kira, where her character, of course, has changed even up at this point, the three seasons that they've done, mm-hmm. and she's much more maternal with him as well. Right. Trying to mm-hmm. get him, convince him, you know, you need to leave. You need to go with the, you know, the evacuation. You need to get off the station as soon as you can. I th- I thought, so it's interesting, a, a few things about this that are kind of interesting to me that deal with the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. We have this fan show up who is like, Jake is her favorite author, even though he's done two books. Mm-hmm. And you might wonder how realistic is that? If someone has only published two books, and it was 75 years ago or whatever, and how realistic is it that someone could be your favorite author? Actually, that's not unrealistic. Mm-hmm. There are books that are in low circulation today 
that uh, may have been popular at one time, but you can find those and think this is this guy was just a genius. Mm-hmm. There's uh, an example of that uh, in my history. He's not now. I don't have a favorite author, but there's a uh, a Canadian economist and humor writer named Stephen Leacock from the early 20th century. And I, his books are not widely known today, but I stumbled across one called Nonsense Novels, where each chapter in the book is a satire of a different genre of novel. So, like, chapter one is a Sherlock Holmes satire. Oh, and they have satires of Sherlock Holmes and science fiction and Russian tragedy and ghost stories and all these classic genres that he's satirizing, and they're genius. <laughs> and I was just like, Stephen Leacock, what a genius. If I could meet him today, I would love to. Yeah. Right. And I, I heard a story, I think on the radio, or I may have read it on the internet, some years ago that if you if you do like six just 600 copies of something someone out there in those 600 people is going to consider what you did one of their favorite things ever hmm, interesting and so for some people probably this is their favorite podcast you yeah, know i'm sure and so it's not unreasonable that there would be a fan out there who would mm-hmm. who would find Jake this interesting and want to want to meet him. What I find less plausible is they somehow know. So the whole thing that sets Cisco's plot in motion here is that there is a, a wormhole malfunction that happens every fifty years. Right. How do they know that? Because they <laughs> haven't known about the wormhole for fifty years. This is this is something they would never have observed before. So they don't really explain that. I do find the timeline that unfolds in the wake of Cisco's disappearance interesting because it's different than the one we know mm-hmm. they later did on the show. There is not a Dominion War mm-hmm. in this right. timeline. Instead, when Cisco dies, apparently the Bajorans take it as a sign that the prophets are not going to protect them against the Klingons, who were the new threat that had just been introduced in Season 4. And so they end up forming a mutual defense pact with the Cardassians mm-hmm. mm. rather than the Federation. It's like, wow, that's a, that's a big change. And then they apparently surrender the station to the Klingons to avoid a war. And then many years later... The uh, Federation is invited to send an expedition through the wormhole to see what's happening with the Dominion. Mm. So it's a very different timeline than the one that we're familiar with. Right. Another thing that I thought was interesting, uh, again, at the beginning of this episode, is the the fan who shows up to visit Jake. And I don't think she's the visitor. I think the visitor is Cisco oh, himself. Yeah. yeah, I agree. But when she shows up, uh, Jake asks, you know, uh, uh, how she found him, and she starts talking about his grandfather's restaurant in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're familiar with Joseph Cisco, yep. but Brock Peters had not actually been cast as him yet. Oh. So this is we haven't even seen Joseph Cisco or the restaurant That's in right. the series yet. That's not till later this season. But they're already establishing the existence of the restaurant and the kind of personality that Jake's right. grandfather has here, even though we don't see him. I, I, I seem to recall, like, very early on, like, first season, they did mention 
that Cisco's dad had a, a restaurant right. in mm-hmm. New Orleans. But I mean, that's literally as far as it went. Yeah, you know, my dad when he would cook, he would use fresh things and stuff like that. You know, not yeah. replicated stuff. You know. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't right. like a wasn't you know again this was more development to and I think it's next is it fourth season this is fourth season but I, I think it's it's either later this season or next season where we actually get to see the restaurant yeah. and all that yeah it's yeah we meet Brock Peters later this season and then we eventually get to see the restaurant this episode happened earlier in the Deep Space Nine chronology than I thought I would have mm-hmm. guessed this was a fifth or sixth season thing right. oh another timeline difference. By the future, mm-hmm. uh, right. Quark is no longer running the bar. It's Morn. Yep. And Jake <laughs> says, oh, he must be talking his customers' ears off and yep. drinking himself out of business, just like you'd expect. Yep. Quark, Quark got his the... moon, and Quark yeah. got his moon, and Morn was running the bar. <laughs> I've always loved that that little inside joke about Morn, that the, the viewer, the, 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 the what never sees Morn talk, but yet he is supposed to be this talkative person. <laughs> yep. I just, I've always loved that bit. You know, this is another one of those Star Trek stories, like Voyager's Year of Hell and several others, where it's a time traveling, you have to time travel to prevent a bad future sort of story. Like, mm-hmm. they keep going yeah. back to this idea. And some of them are more successful than others. And it's, I mean, I, I get why you do it, because you what you do is you present your 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 favorite characters in a bad place. And like, oh mm-hmm. my gosh, how can we get them out of this bad place? It's terrible that they're there. And so then you create this dramatic tension by saying, well, we could take them out of it if only we could go back in time and undo this. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and that's, I, I mean, what do you think? I also, I also wonder if there's a sense that they use this as idea, ways to present ideas that they might want to play with later. Like, I mean, the, the entire storyline won't continue the way it is. Obviously, this is an alternate timeline. But there's certain things that they can play with that they can then kind of say, okay, we want to look at this aspect or that aspect and use that to kind of uh, continue the story, the, the main storyline. So I, I really wonder if it's kind of helped develop the characters, even though it's developing them in a little bit different way and mm. develop the storyline, even though it's developing in a little different way. Yeah. I think that this is, for serial television, this is a natural way for um, for time to progress or for time travel stories to be done because one of the key questions in a time travel story is, can you change fate? Mm-hmm. I mean, if if that's not on the table in some way, your story runs the risk of being less interesting. But then how would you, how, if you think about the writing parameters, okay, what are we changing? Is it the past or the future that we're, tra- that we're changing? Changing the past is a problem because mm-hmm. that will have ripple effects. There was uh, apparently Gene Roddenberry kept pitching a story idea for a Star Trek movie where they go back to try to stop the Kennedy assassination. Hmm. And it's like, okay, and that never got approved because they either change it, in which case all of history unfolds differently and differently than it did in our world, creating a believability problem for the audience, or they fail. Mm-hmm. In which case, we just watched a movie where the heroes try to do something impossible and thus fail at doing it. Right. And so it's hard to see a good payoff for that kind of thing. And now, it because Star Trek is set in the future, they don't have to go all the way back to events that are in our past, like the Kennedy assassination. They could just go back 100 years. Mm-hmm. 
and change something in their past. So maybe in Picard's time, they decide the Treaty of Algeron was a bad idea. So let's go back 80 years and undo the Treaty of Algeron. But even then, if you're doing that in the fourth season of your show, you've just wiped all of the episodes up to that point. Right. And so that makes it hard to do because the fans are going to say, hey, I was invested in those four years, and I'm not a comic book fan who's used to periodic resets and Mm. can still enjoy stories in spite of them. So there would be a huge fan backlash. So if you're going to do a change history story, it's easier in this kind of fiction to do it from the perspective of we've just jumped forward and seen a nightmare Mm -hmm. future, and now we're going to avert that future while preserving the episodes that we already have fans invested in. Right. Hmm. The closest I've seen to something really daring like this was in Fringe, uh, because in Fringe, there is a point where we have these two parallel worlds that are sort of merged, and it it does have implications for the episodes we've already seen before. Now, what I have thought about for years doing, and haven't yet, but at some point I want to write a book of short stories Mm -hmm. that appear to be unrelated to each other, but are all, you eventually learn, they're all set in the same universe. Oh, fun. And each story contributes something to the overall series, some concept or character or location. And halfway through the series, we've built to a nightmare point, Mm -hmm. like a nuclear war or something. And then we have a time travel episode that resets. And we start walking through the history and see, is it going to go nightmare again? And then by the end of the final couple of stories, we have elements from all of the previous ones coming in to form part of the climax, which is an incredibly intricate thing to do, which is part of why I haven't gotten beyond the notes taking stage on it. <laughs> but but what would be happening here essentially is I would walk you into the nightmare future a step at a time. Right and show you why it needs to be reset mm. right. so you wouldn't feel betrayed because everything has gone wrong. Now let's see if we can fix it. Interesting. That would be interesting. I mean, sort of like Discovery has has done that. They've done the part where you jump forward into a nightmare scenario of the fall of the Federation, um, but they apparently are not going to jump back to fix it. No. But you could imagine that would be something that they would do, is they would jump back and undo that future. Uh, apparently, so that would be a sort of standard single episode Star Trek way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the other way they do this sort of thing is to, to show the nightmare scenario is the mirror universe or alternate right. dimension. Yeah, I was just, just going to say that they, you know, they really did that with uh, Enterprise with the mirror ep- mirror universe episodes where they actually showed the first contact with the Vulcans, where they blast them, the Earthlings blast the Vulcans and take over their technology yeah. instead of. Uh, join up with them you know so right. same same kind of thing but they do it again in a different universe so that doesn't wipe out prime universe history you know there's also a, a when you talk about are they are they uh testing some ideas for development of this store of the series you know one of the things that that you could say this parallels is the final episode of deep space nine the very last episode the disappearance of cisco i mean that's mm-hmm. a, a second time when Cisco disappears, and in fact, there's a scene in in that episode 
where Jake and Kira are standing in the airlock of one of the the um or the observation windows. Yeah, one of the yeah. observation windows, having almost the same sort of scene. I mean, in fact, if if you look at it, the blocking is ex- is almost exactly mm. the same. Like there's a clear parallel going on. And so this this idea of what happens if Cisco disappears. And so we have that here in the middle of the series and then we we actually get it again at the end of the series. It's almost as if that it's fated to be that Cisco mm-hmm. is removed from the equation, and then the Bajorans have to go on without the emissary, or or something along those lines. It's an interesting. I I find it interesting that they've done this twice in this series. Mm-hmm. So, um, the couple of other things that I wanted to mention was uh, like Jake's grieving process. Uh, a, he's a young man who's undergone severe trauma losing both his parents in in violent ways in, in front of him. Mm-hmm. And the older Jake says to the, the girl, Melanie, he says, time passes, they realize that the person they lost is really gone, and they heal. Except I never did, he says. Because right. he kept having this hope presented to him that his dad really isn't gone. I just thought that was an interesting, um, interesting explanation of why Jake never healed. He never... His grieving never progressed. Uh, right. I don't know what you guys think of, of, of well, how this portrays well, that. His, well, after he knew his dad wasn't dead, mm-hmm. that interrupted the healing process. Right, right. And it's it's like the old old saying about, you know, if you keep picking at a wound, it'll never heal. You know, and yeah. it's the same kind of deal where he, he could heal. And you could see there are points where he does heal. You know, he meets a woman and they, they fall in love, get married, and they're, you know, thinking about family and all this. And then Cisco shows up again. And right. it completely derails all that because that wound is now reopened. And now and that's where he dedicates his life to going back and learning all this temporal mechanics and all the other sciences, you know, Star Trek sciences, so that mm-hmm. he could try to stop this. Yeah. Yeah. What I found interesting uh, beyond the basic structure of the plot is the color that we get of Jake's life. Mm-hmm. You know, because we see these different vignettes at different points as we move forward in this alternate timeline. So we see that at one point he is married to a woman who's a Bajoran and she's a painter. Yep. And we also see Nog in the future, you mm-hmm. know, and we see him progressing up the ranks and he eventually becomes a Starfleet captain. So mm-hmm. we have our Captain Nog right here uh he's he's captain at the point of the 50 year inversion in 24 21 it would be mm-hmm. we also see jake starting to drift away or at least we hear about him drifting away from his wife because his growing knowledge of what's happened to his dad has led him to start studying subspace mechanics mm-hmm. and he's throwing himself into researching his father's problem instead of building a family and we see Cisco frustrated at him like a lot of, you know, parents with adult children. It's like, okay, where are the grandkids? Right. <laughs> you know, I right. want to see the grandkids. And Jake is not having any. And eventually he loses his wife. And so th- seeing the kind of emotional texture of Jake's life is part of what's interesting about this episode. You know, there's a scene earlier when Jake, well, the second time Cisco come back, comes back and he's in. I think it's the second time when he's in sick bay and mm-hmm. he's being examined and you know, the, the doctor Bashir and, and O'Brien and J- Dax go off to do sciencey things. And it's just Jake and, and Cisco there. And this was the most affecting scene for me. The, the, 
Cisco says, you ask him, how are you doing? Because it's been months since Jake mm-hmm. last saw his dad. And Jake nearly bursts into tears. And it, I mean, it gets to me every time because mm-hmm. I can imagine being in that place with my own children and that feeling of as a dad, I, like, I'm sorry that I'm causing you this pain, you know, that by, by my situation, I, I, I don't want you to be in pain. I want you to live your life and to go on. And it's such an affecting moment. It's so well done. It was well directed, well acted. Uh, I really, I, I, I just really want to give plaudits for that scene right there. It was so, so very well done. Sir Lofton did a great job in in the mm-hmm. those scenes. I, I think. I find it funny, by, by the way, that uh, Jake writes his novels with pen and paper <laughs> in the twentieth yeah. century. <laughs> yeah. That was fun. Well, we also do see him writing on a pad with a stylus at one mm-hmm. point. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So part of the contrivance of this is there's this because Jake and Cisco were there at the original wormhole thing near the warp core of the Defiant that caused the malfunction. There's this subspace link between the two of them, mm-hmm. which is why Cisco keeps appearing wherever Jake is mm-hmm. at these progressively longer intervals. And if Jake dies, Therefore, apparently, Cisco will be lost in subspace forever. Right. And he won't know because he's, time is not passing for him in subspace. Right. It'll effectively be they both die at the same time. Mm-hmm. But it's conceptualized as Cisco will be lost in subspace forever. Now, the horror writer in me <laughs> says, why is Jake's life tied up with subspace? Isn't it just the molecules in his body? that are tied up with subspace. (laughs) So maybe at progressively longer intervals, Cisco will get to see Jake's decaying corpse. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. Wow, that's horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I said, it's the horror writer in me. Yeah, 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 Um, yeah. yeah. And and the scientist. But, you know, that's how they've set it up, and so they have to be together to sever this link, and so that's why Jake has to kill himself. Which he doesn't do in a really, I mean, it's very emotional, but he doesn't like aim a phaser at himself or anything like that. He's got like an injection that he gives himself. And it's very dramatic for Cisco. And he tells him, he, Jake tells his dad, jump the other way mm-hmm. from the discharge from the warp core. Right. And that would suggest that Cisco has a memory of this alternative timeline. Right. When it's reset, and I'm not sure that that's realistic, but I, 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 if you're really genuinely resetting time, I'm not sure he'd carry that memory back from this moment to that moment. But yeah, whatever, maybe. Well, I was gonna say, I, I, I mean, I just kind of, you know, maybe headcanon, however you want to call it. But they, they did say like it's a rubber band's being stretched, where he's being pulled into the future, and every time he comes, there's another stretch further forward, further forward. And so I, you could say that for because Cisco is in in subspace that yes this was all concurrent to him but again this is right. this is what they imply they don't specifically say that yes even though the time reset and it could be one of those things of having you know an echoes in time but you know that that's a whole nother storyline for a whole different tv series and all that stuff <laughs> i think they did that in tng yep uh, subspace echoes in data's brain uh you yep. know i wanted to, to mention this this idea of jake committing suicide in the morality of that you know the you know, of course, killing yourself is is wrong, uh, but he but 
Killing yourself is also wrong in this case. Yes. Yeah. I was gonna, yeah. I mean, it's, it's clearly, I mean, he's still willing in something, even though we, we've erased the, the, the timeline, it still happened. Because if it didn't yeah. happen... This is like Amy Pond killing Madame Kaverian in an alternate timeline. You still killed that person. Yep. Right, right. So it's, I wanted to mention that and make, make that uh, explicit. Do you guys have any other notes about this episode? Anything else you want to say? Um, apparently the, the BBC aren't the only ones who go through their uh, wardrobe for things for like Doctor Who. Uh, all the the future uniforms are the same ones from All Good Things, the final episode of TNG. They're the right. same exact uniforms. That's right. Yep. Anything else, Jimmy? Uh, um, one of the things that uh that I liked about this is there's a moment where Cisco returns. It's the last one where Cisco returns and Jake is asleep, mm-hmm. and he's just watching Jake. Mm. And I find that a fascinating choice for him because he knows he's only got seconds. Mm-hmm. That's how long these encounters last. It's just a few minutes. Just So it's just a matter of seconds. And he, rather than wake Jake up, he chooses to just watch him. And given how old Jake is at this point, Cisco could infer this may be the last time we meet. And he still chooses to let Jake sleep rather than wake him up and talk to me, son. Mm. So I found that interesting. I also uh, really liked that. So one of the things that sometimes happens, and this particularly happens with Avery Brooks, is as a as an actor, he is he is very conscious of race mm-hmm. uh, in the human sense. Mm-hmm. And he, like, that's why he demanded that the ending of Deep Space Nine be changed. Because the original plan that Iris Stephen Bear had was because they'd revealed he's half profit. Mm-hmm. And so the the final ending was originally going to be Cisco takes his place among the prophets permanently and does not ever come back. And that would have been a great ending. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, because they'd written it so that Cassidy Yates was pregnant at the time, Avery Brooks had a real problem with with a, a story ending where a black man abandons his unborn child mm. and demanded that it be written rewritten so that Cisco would come back at some point so it wouldn't be perceived as African-American father abandoning child. Right. And there are similar episodes where the same kind of thing happens, where like in the uh, Bada Bing Bada Bang holodeck episode, yeah, it's noted that Captain Cisco has never been to the holodeck because it's set in 1961 and race relations were not ironed out then. Mm. And they have to. Cassidy Yates has a scene with him where she's got to convince him to come to the holodeck anyway. And this is about we shouldn't be limited by what was you know, the case in the real 1961, we're no longer bound by those limits. We shouldn't live in the shadow of the fear of that forever. Mm -hmm. And so whether you buy that as an argument or not, it has to be addressed. And again, it's because of this overall race situation. Well, what I liked about this story is this is a very human story and there's nothing about race in it. Mm. This is just human people reacting, loving each other, and we have all of the fatherhood theme issues, and it's not complicated by anything outside. It, we're not making a statement here about anything other than human nature. 
great. And yeah. I really like that. Yeah. I think that's what really appeals to me. Is it's not, not a political statement. It's not a social statement, social justice, or anything like that. It's just about fathers and sons, parents and children, and love. And yeah. loss. And loss. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, that's a good point, Jimmy. Thank you. I was going to say, one thing I do have to admit is this has always been one of one of my favorite DS9 episodes. I was kind of afraid it was going to get ripped apart, and I think we all kind of agree that it is, it is one of the good yeah, DS9 it has, episodes. It has, you know, it has its flaws, but yeah, uh, the, that that human element is what ma- really makes it, that ca- those character moments. Uh, I was going to say the last thing on, on this that I was going to say was uh, I agree with Melanie. I, too, often wish I could go back and read a book, a great book, again, for the first time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> without knowledge of what happens because the first time you read a book and it's a great book is it's special it's magic and uh you can never recapture that so uh that, mm. that's a great book i always like rereading because i see the new details and yep. deeper levels yeah that i mean that's true and i do i do enjoy rereading but there's something about not knowing what happens next and just getting mm-hmm. that experience of 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 seeing oh for the first time uh, and I enjoy that in my kids when they watch something that I love, like a great movie or read a book that I love, and seeing them oh. experience for the first time. So that's there's, there's an element of that. My problem is I'm so focused on plot that <laughs> I'm 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 always thinking what's going to happen next, and usually I'm right. <laughs> right. But there are occasion, but I I agree there are moments where it is so exciting because I don't know what's going to happen next. Right, uh, right. That happened for me in a movie called Gone Girl. Yes, um, great movie. And where it, where I, at a certain point, I, I found it, even though I could predict it up to a certain point, there's a point in that movie where, okay, this has become un- unpredictable for me. This is very exciting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that was a great movie. Yeah. <laughs> See, for me, it's, it's the uh, Lord of the Rings books, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I wish I could go back and read them without knowing the movies. I mean, the, the <laughs> right. Lord of the Rings movies are, are, they're good, but they do change things, and they do change some of the plot. And then, yeah. of course, the Hobbit movies are unspeakable but anyways <laughs> well let's, let's switch gears right now because we get some listener feedback from some of our previous episodes uh we have an email from Luis who wrote uh i agree 100 percent that the special effects improvements made to the original series are near perfect they improve but do not change the original which is exactly what should be done and his editorial comment if only that idiot george lucas had done the same thing <laughs> yeah agreed but i i agree i do like we had said before the 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 remastering of the special effects for the original series that you can get online now that we see online now uh they they update it without making it modern and and that's that's really nice well there's there's i've seen people complain online that oh it looks too much like a 1990s video game so it's not it doesn't need to look you don't need to be right. able to count every rivet on the enterprise it was a 1960s television series so that's what you get. Uh, then we got an email from Paul, uh, who was writing in about our recent discussion of the original series episode, Court Martial. Uh, and he says, one thing at which I noticed, which I thought was jarring back watching it as a kid in the 70s, was Kirk's deposition. Why was his signed deposition on regular paper? Such a document would be entered into the legal files for the court. They'd have to be computer searchable. They already had the basis for computer searchable when the computer rattled off Kirk's awards earned during his career. Which uh, so pausing there, that's a good point. Of course, the original mm-hmm. series had this habit of mixing what was contemporary for the day with what they saw for the future. So uh, it, it, there's a, n- a number of times when that happens in the series. And then he continues from a legal point of view. Remember that Spock and McCoy arrived to deliver the news 
after Cogley rests his case. So their news about Finney. Mm-hmm. Then Cogley goes into his rant about rights. The prosecution says he's already rested his case and he's known for such theatrics, i.e. Perry Mason in space. Uh, in reality, the case is closed and Kirk would, ha- would have to use that information to file an appeal. However, her whole case is based on if Kirk pressed the red alert button yet. One second legally cannot, then the next second he, he legally can. However, they skate over this in court when they do have a chance to think in those terms. So, yeah, it was a bit sloppy in the legal proceedings, I'd say that. It was very sloppy yeah. in the legal proceedings. If you if you want a good sci-fi courtroom drama, go read Fuzzy Nation by mm-hmm. uh, John uh, Scalzi. Yes. And especially the uh, audiobook version by Will Wheaton. Right. Sure. Uh, and then uh, Paul does say that there was supposedly was a deleted scene where they found Finney's diary or personal log and that there were entries there suggesting this is the kind of stunt he would pull if he ever got the chance uh and this was supposedly was part of the reason why his daughter amy had a change of heart regarding kirk interesting i had not heard that so thank you paul and louise for your feedback we really appreciate getting feedback from listeners uh we do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of star trek including Steve H., Teresa N., Samuel C., Ian S., and Nick W. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What do you think of DS9's The Visitor? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. And remember to join the the StarQuest fan club mailing list. Text StarQuest to 66866. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Voyager episode, Cathexis. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. God bless you and thank you. (laughs) Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. (laughs) <laughs> so, Cathexis, that's the one where Ensign Kathy and Tuvok get merged, or it, what is that one? <laughs> that's a, that would probably be better than Tuvik's. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, Ferengi dating tip, you'll be more popular with women when you stop asking them to chew your food for you. <laughs>